two men enter an ornate Art Deco penthouse apartment. One is a collector of artifacts. The other is an adventurer of sorts. The men begin by reminiscing about museums until the collector unveils an artifact he's recently obtained. It's a stone tablet, about two feet square, and has inscriptions of letters and symbols. The artifact impresses the adventurer, who comments that the piece is sandstone, inscribed in early Latin writing, and is probably from the 12th century. The collector found the stone when excavating for copper. The text on the stone was difficult to translate, but the adventurer gives it a shot. It reads this, He who drinks the water I shall give him, says the Lord, will have a spring inside him welling up for eternal life. Let them bring me to your holy mountain in the place where you dwell, across the desert and through the mountain to the canyon of the crescent moon, to the temple where the cup that. The adventurer pauses, overwhelmed by what he's reading where the cup that holds the blood of Jesus Christ resides forever. The two men stare at one another. This is the holy grail, the collector explains. The chalice used by Christ during the Last Supper, the cup that caught his blood at the crucifixion and was entrusted to Joseph of Arimathea. The adventurer remains skeptical. He's heard the bedtime story about King Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail before. But the collector is adamant. He chimes back. Eternal life, the gift of youth to whomever drinks the Grail. That's a bedtime story I would like to wake up to. Well, the men go back and forth. And soon enough, the adventurer is off to find the Grail using the newfound clues. Oh, but the quest doesn't come easy. It's filled with booby traps and rats and Nazis. You have to know how to spell Jehovah in Latin. And remember, it begins with an I. You have to walk by faith, not by sight. And perhaps most importantly, you have to choose the right cup. And you must choose wisely. There's a hint. It's the old dusty cup. What do you think of when you think of the, La the Lord's Supper? Depictions from popular culture such as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was the scene I was describing, or Monty Python and the Holy Grail, or even old stories from King Arthur and the Round Table, could lead us to think of the Lord's Supper as something mystical or magical, maybe a nice fable or myth. For many, this wouldn't be too far from the view that they have of the Lord's Supper. Well, just like baptism, which we talked about last week, I want to pull us away from that kind of mystical view of it and take us toward a more biblical view. And friends, the biblical view is deeper and far more significant. So the main point for today's sermon, similar to the one last week on baptism, you'll find it printed in your bulletin, is that the Lord's Supper is a rich, symbolic meal ordained by Christ that displays our salvation in the past, present, and future. 
It expresses our unity in Christ and renews our oath to Christ and to one another. So if you're hopping in midstream to this series called Questions About the Church, this is the fourth installment, we've defined so far what a local church is and isn't and shown how God's word is the final authority for a local church, meaning that it informs what we believe, it informs how we worship, it informs how we relate to one another, how we live in the world, and so on. Last week and this week, we are discussing the ordinances of Jesus Christ, practices he ordained both by his example and by his command. These are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, we want to understand the meaning of these practices and explore how they give shape to local churches. So we'll rehash what we said about baptism last week, but for now, the definition we offered was this. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water. And it is a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. So by the end of our time, we'll see more clearly how baptism and the Lord's Supper fit together. So for for today's sermon, if we use a painting analogy of where we're going to go, the big, broad strokes, there are two of them. What the Bible says and what we do in light of what the Bible says. And if you think about it, that should pretty much be the broad strokes of any sermon, right? We start with what the Bible says, and then we seek to apply what the Bible says to our lives. But within those big strokes are smaller, detailed strokes. So within what the Bible says, we'll make four different stops, kind of a narrative arc of the Bible discussing the Lord's Supper, similar to baptism. And in that second big stroke, we'll just ask some basic investigative questions, those little detailed strokes. Who of the Lord's Supper, the what of the Lord's Supper, and the why of the Lord's Supper? All right? That's the plan. Plan set. Got your little easel in hand. And we take up our brushes and we go to work. So, let's start with what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. Have you ever seen a horde of locusts? How does the prospect of giant boils covering your body sound? Have you ever experienced it rain like cat and dogs? The better question is, have you ever experienced hail like cat and dogs? Now, what if you went through all these things one right after another? Well, believe it or not, there's a group of people who did and endured more events than just these. And these are, of course, the ten plagues when the people of Israel were enslaved to Egypt. So perhaps you're familiar with how the story goes. The people of Israel found refuge in Egypt, like we saw in Genesis, when there was a famine in the land of Canaan. And Israel prospered when they were in Egypt. They grew, they multiplied. But eventually there arose a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. 
and, they, and he enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. But God would make good on his promise to deliver them from their oppressor. So he raised up Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He told Moses, go tell Pharaoh, better yet, go ask Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses does. And what does Pharaoh say? No. He goes back. He says, no again. This keeps on happening. And so hence, every time Pharaoh says no, God brought plagues as a judgment on the Egyptians to show his superiority above them and their false gods. So Egypt went through nine of these cataclysmic events until there was a threat of one final one. The death of each firstborn son. This judgment would come because Pharaoh refused to let go of Israel, who God called his firstborn son in Exodus 4. But before this happened, God told Israel to make a certain meal. It was food on the go. He describes it in Exodus chapter 12. You can turn there if you like. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, it's on page 54. And as we read earlier, of this meal, God tells Israel what to make. He tells them how to make it and even how to eat it. You'll notice as you're reading it that the central part of this meal is a lamb. It's the lamb that shows us that this was not just any ordinary meal for the Israelites. It was also their salvation. They were to apply the blood from the lamb to their doorposts. And God said, because of this, in verse 13, that when he saw the blood, he would do what? He would pass over their house. Thus the name of the meal, Passover. So you can see then how this vividly points to Christ. And without the blood of Christ, God's judgment for our sin would fall on us. But instead, Christ's blood is shed for us. And the judgment for our sin falls on him, the great Passover lamb. So the Passover became an annual celebration for Israel. We see that instituted in verse 14. They were to celebrate this every year, to retell the story of their salvation. So that every year, God's past act of delivering them would be brought into the present. You can look at the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 8. And notice how God tells parents to explain the Passover to their children. He says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me did for me when I came out of Egypt, bringing past deliverance into the present. Well, the Passover was even more than that. It was a reminder of God's deliverance for Israel, and it marked their birth as a nation. So Passover was for the people of Israel, which explains why those outside of the community of Israel had to come into the community to celebrate it. 
And what was the initiation into the community of Israel? What was the sign that marked the initiation, the entrance into the community? It's circumcision. You look at chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. It says, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. That is the Passover. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Going on. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So we'll touch on this more. But you can see the connection for the new covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the sign of entrance into the new covenant community. And the Lord's Supper is the sign, like the Passover, that we are in that new covenant community. While we go on from the Passover, and when we read of Christ's life, we see that Jesus turned the Passover into something new. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find the description of Christ celebrating the Passover with his disciples. In fact, he said that he longed to eat this Passover with his disciples. And what exactly is Jesus doing in this? Well, he's doing several things. If you turn to Matthew chapter 26, you'll find it on page 832. You'll see that in the beginning of verse 17, they start to make preparations for this meal. And notice that the, bo- the bounds of community, what binds the community who takes this meal, they've changed. It used to be that families take this meal together. Now, Jesus is taking this meal with his friends who have become his family by virtue of his sacrifice. So as we read in Matthew 26, Jesus was well aware of what was about to take place. His body would be broken. His blood would be spilt. Thus, Jesus took the bread and the wine as symbols for his sacrifice. And friends, that word symbol is an intentional one. Might be a slightly longer sidebar than I normally like, but I hope you could stick with me because I believe it will be helpful. There are some who take Jesus' words, this is my body, to mean that he is saying it is his literal body. And we'll dissect this some, but right off the bat, you can see that this isn't the best way to read this text. Because how can the disciples, even Jesus himself, who's participating in this, be eating his body when he is right there? So reading in this way would force us to misinterpret any use of analogies or metaphors in Scripture. For example, Jesus calls himself in another place the door to eternal life. I am the door. Does that mean Jesus literally is a door? No. Well, supporters of this view also appeal to the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6, where Jesus said that the bread people must eat for eternal life is his flesh. Well, that seems pretty obvious there. But again, is Jesus speaking literally? Friends, context would tell us no. The emphasis throughout the book of John, and even in that chapter, 
is a faith response to Jesus. So you read in John chapter 6, verse 40, that the response Jesus is looking for is belief in him. That is what it means to eat his flesh. That is the analogy he's using for it. Furthermore, as you read the Gospel of John, you see that it's full of misunderstood metaphors. But we want to describe this view well. We want to be charitable. We want to be respectful. We don't want to just leave it here. The view that we're describing is known as transubstantiation, which is held by the Roman Catholic Church. So passages like Matthew 26 and John 6 form part of the basis for this doctrine. And this doctrine of transubstantiation states that the substance of the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving, that the substances of the Lord's Supper, the the bread and the cup, transform into the body and the blood of Christ. So I said it's based partially on those passages because there's another basis for it. The other basis comes from Aristotle's philosophy, which broke down substances into two attributes. So we have essential attributes and we have accidental attributes. Hang with me here. Essential attributes are qualities that can't be changed or else the thing itself would lose what it is. Accidental attributes are qualities not at the core that can be changed and the thing remains what it is. So boots to the ground, what does that mean? That means for the Eucharist, Roman Catholics believe that the accidental attributes remain the same, that it still tastes like and looks like, and smells like, and feels like bread and wine. But the substance with its accidental attributes, or its essential attributes, excuse me, is transformed into the body of Christ. So there's a deeper explanation of when this happens and how this happens. But the final product is that the Eucharist then becomes more than a memorial. It becomes a representation of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So since God is not bound by time, they say that what is at the cross and what is at the table is the same sacrifice. So you'd understand then why this would be central to each Mass. Well, in response, we may say that this is built on a faulty reading of the biblical text that it rests on outside philosophy, that it developed late in church history. In fact, it was not an official pronouncement until 1215, and that it takes for granted that Christ is not on the cross anymore. He's risen. He's ascended. Sidebar over. Return to how Jesus transforms the Passover. See several ways. Passover meal was a sign of of God's covenant with Israel. The Lord's Supper would now be a sign of the new covenant, long awaited, that would bring forgiveness of sin, new hearts. That was one through Christ's sacrifice. The Lord's Supper testifies of that. Jesus transformed the Passover into a new memorial. Just as the Passover brought God's past deliverance into the present, So does the Lord's Supper, only it's not looking at the deliverance from Israel out of Egypt. It's looking of the deliverance 
from sin that Christ achieved on the cross. Verse 28 of Matthew 26 says, This is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Like the Passover marked the identity and community of the people of Israel, the people of the Old Covenant, the Lord's Supper marks out the identity and community of those who are saved by Christ. So each time we partake in the Lord's Supper, we ratify the new covenant and recommit the promise we made in our profession of faith. So, narrative arc, what the Bible says, looked at the Old Testament Passover, looked at when Jesus institutes the Passover. How did the first Christians think of the Passover? Well, the Bible describes it. The first Christians understood that they were to continue observing the Lord's Supper. In the book of Acts, there is the repeated phrase, the breaking of bread. It's unclear to, to whether or not that always refers to the Lord's Supper, but in some places, it's absolutely clear that this must be the Lord's Supper. But I think we get a better snapshot of it, of what the early church thought of the Lord's Supper if we look at a place like 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, you'll find that on page, beginning on page 957, 1 Corinthians 10. And here we find that the Lord's Supper is a practice for local churches. And it signifies our fellowship or our participation with Christ and one another. That word fellowship, participation, is where we get communion so we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in this chapter, Paul is revealing his concern that believers are participating in these sacrificial meals that are honoring false gods. He doesn't want the Corinthians to identify and seek the benefits from these false gods. He says, even though these false gods don't exist, Paul emphasized that they invite demonic influence and Christians should have nothing to do with that. So once again, you look at verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul clarifies that it's not that they shouldn't be around non-Christians. Rather, they should not honor their so-called gods. So rather than identifying with false gods at meals, Christians identify with Christ at the Lord's Supper. So you begin reading in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. So at the Lord's Supper, we enjoy and experience anew what Christ won for us at the cross. We feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. So think of it like preaching. Those of you here listening to preaching may already believe the gospel. But when you hear preaching from the Bible, it can come to you again with new power. 
And you can trust Christ even more after hearing it. That's similar to feeding on, our, feeding on Christ in our hearts by faith when partaking of the Lord's Supper. And we do this together. It gives expression then to our union with Christ in our union with one another. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says that because there is one bread, we are one body. So by participating in the Lord's Supper, we commit not just to Christ, but to one another. We commit to being a church together. This is why the Lord's Supper is specifically for local churches. It's not for campus ministries. It's not for hospitals. It's not for youth groups. It's for local churches, when churches come together. So we can go to chapter 11. And ask as we're reading it, what's an effective way to ruin a party? Maybe you can come up with ideas in your mind. Here's an effective way. Show up early, eat all the food, and get drunk. <laughs> That's what the rich members in Corinth were doing for the Lord's Supper. They treated it as their own private party. So then not only were the Corinthians participating in meals that honored false gods, but when they came together for the Lord's Supper, they did it sinfully. That's what Paul tackles in 1 Corinthians 11. Look at that chapter, verse 26. For as often as you eat, notice there's no command of how frequent you do it, just for off, as often as you eat. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So keep in mind the context of chapter 11. In light of their behavior, in light of how they've been treating the Lord's Supper, Paul reminds them of the purpose behind it. That in the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the saving death of Christ. And because the Lord's Supper announces this gospel, it also carries the demands of this gospel. So you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 11, after verse 26, and Paul warns about partaking in the Lord's Supper in what he says is an unworthy manner. He warns of partaking without, he says, discerning the body. So to partake without believing in Christ would absolutely be doing it in an unworthy manner. Partaking it without believing in Christ would absolutely be just doing it without discerning the body. But you consider the context of 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul is warning more than unbelievers here. The Corinthians had no regard for one another. That's the issue. So how could they declare the power of the Lord's death when they are despising the Lord's people? So we absolutely should examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. Absolutely, should do it. But we should also examine ourselves to make sure we are consistent. That we love Christ and we love his people. So when you come to the Lord's Supper, 
detect broken relationships. Detect any division-causing behavior you may be participating in. And just as a general rule, if you're living in a way that boldly contradicts your claim to follow Christ, and you are not sincerely trying to repent of that, you should not partake in the Lord's Supper. Paul says in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11, that because of their self-centered celebration of the Lord's Supper, that God judged the Corinthians. Some of them were sick. Some of them even died. So because of the weightiness of it, we need to judge ourselves rightly. His closing words to them about this, verse 34, wait for one another. This expresses our love for each other. So remember, friends, that the standard is worthy participation, not worthy participants. If perfection was the requirement for the Lord's Supper, then no one could partake. Repentance is key. So for those genuinely trusting in Christ but struggling with the sin, you should be strengthened when you come to the table. But since the Lord's Supper is about a church coming together, in fact, read 1 Corinthians 11 this afternoon. Notice all the times Paul says, when you come together. Since the Lord's Supper is about a church coming together to cherish Christ and care for one another, we need to make sure we're doing that. What's the best part of a fireworks display? The grand finale. They've saved the best for last. I was going to say, for me, it's my dog going crazy, but that's not actually the best part. <laughs> Fireworks displays save the best for last. And so does our story of the Lord's Supper. We are in a time of the already, but not yet. Jesus has already ushered in the kingdom and paid the penalty for our sins but he has not yet made all things new. We eagerly await for that new creation, to see God face to face, where sin and death and sorrow are things of the past, where our faith will become sight. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at that transformed Passover meal, he put in a clue that this is also a practice of anticipation. You can look back at Matthew 26. And Jesus told his disciples that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drinks it anew in his Father's kingdom. When's this going to happen? Well, the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. You can read of that in a place like Ephesians 5. But in the already not yet age, the church is engaged, it's not yet married. But the wedding's coming. And at the wedding, there's going to be a great feast. And this feast will be like un unlike anything we have ever known. On that day, Revelation 19 says, there will be rejoicing and exaltation like the sounds of thunder. So every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, we anticipate that day.
we anticipate that great feast. We bring the future into the present. It's a time of anticipation because we know and believe that God is saving the best for last. That's the story. That's what the Bible says, at least as a general survey. So a summary of what we covered, I'll give you a definition of the Lord's Supper from a well-known statement of faith. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ to be observed by his churches until the end of the world. It is to be observed by the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup. It is in no sense a sacrifice, but is designed to commemorate his death, to confirm the faith and other graces of Christians, and to be a bond, pledge, and renewal of their communion with him and of their church fellowship. We likewise believe that the supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby the members of the church, following earnest self-examination, use the bread and the cup in a sacred manner to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. The ordinances belong to the gathered church, marking off believers from unbelievers and making the church visible on earth. If you got all that written down, I don't know, I'll give you $10. (laughs) The second section of our painting will be smaller. And no, the painting does not include Jesus with his disciples sitting on the same side of the table. You can imagine the hostess uh, honoring that request. Um, Well, the second section of the painting deals with what we do now. So, smaller strokes to fill in this section begin with basic investigative questions. Who, what, and why? Light of what the Bible says, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? As we saw, especially from 1 Corinthians, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance for local churches. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, it binds individuals and churches into one body. The Apostle Paul assumes that there was a time when the church came together as a church. And it was in that gathering that they celebrated the Lord's Supper. So that's the big group. What about individuals in that group? What individuals should participate in the Lord's Supper? So to preface that answer, we should note that this isn't spelled out in exact terms by one single passage of Scripture. So that means we need to draw together everything we went over and we needed to draw out implications of teaching on the Lord's Supper, on baptism, and the local church. That being said, the Lord's Supper is for believers in Jesus Christ. To participate in the Lord's Supper is to renew your profession of faith. To do that, you must believe in Christ in the first place. So for any here who may be unsure or are definitely not Christians, thank you for listening. First of all, my goodness, it's been a while. But also, we hope that you feel welcome. The Lord's Supper here is meant to show you the warm fellowship that we have with Christ and with one another. But for non-Christians, they should also feel excluded not meant to be harsh, 
But the bread and the cup should pass you by because you are passing Christ by. And we pray that it's a time of reflection of your need for that Passover lamb. The one who died on the cross for the payment of sin and rose again in victory. So what individuals should participate? Believers in Jesus Christ. I'm persuaded also that it should be believers in Jesus Christ who have been baptized upon their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So let me stress that again. Like we said last week, this is by no means saying that baptism is required for salvation. We believe in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I am persuaded that baptized believers should participate in the Lord's Supper for several reasons. Number one, it appears to be the pattern of the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't know any unbaptized Christians. You take the day of Pentecost, for example. They heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, they were baptized, they were added to the church, then they broke bread together. That happens in succession. Number two, it's been the practice of the church throughout history. Highlighted through professor, uh, by Professor Greg Allison, that with very few exceptions, the church has always insisted on this order of baptism followed by the Lord's Supper. Number three, it's consistent with what each ordinance means. Baptism is the initiation rite. It's the front door. It's how you make your profession of faith. The Lord's Supper is the continuing rite. It's the family meal. It's how you renew your profession of faith. So how do you renew something that you have yet to profess? How can you sit at the table if you haven't entered the house yet? Number four, our requirements for the Lord's Supper should not be less than our requirements for church membership. By requiring baptism for membership, a church is saying that this is what it means to enter our community. And friends, the Lord's Supper is the expression of that new covenant community. So what individuals should participate? I know it's a lengthy answer, but it's worth looking into. It should be believers who have been baptized upon their profession of faith, and they should be members in good standing of a local church. Again, this is not to say that church membership is required for salvation. That being said, in the Bible, there are no churchless Christians. To come to Christ is to come to the church. Again, we remember Pentecost. The believers were baptized, and then it says immediately they were added to them. They were added to the church in Jerusalem. In the rest of the Acts, we see that wherever the gospel went and people came to Christ, what happened? Churches sprung up. So participants in the Lord's Supper should be members of, the local of a local church because the New Testament assumes that we should know who is inside and outside of a local church. You could take 1 Corinthians 5, for example, if you're still open to 1 Corinthians. It's on page 954. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 12. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So here, Paul tells the Corinthians that they have the authority to judge anyone who is inside the church, who claims to be a believer, but lives in bold contradiction to that claim. He tells them that they should be able to know who is inside and outside of the church. All who profess faith in Christ should be on the inside of a local church. They should get baptized, and then they should partake in the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a meal for the church. Friend, if you don't belong to a church, your life's kind of out of line with this reality. It's like a brick outside of a wall. It's like a hand cut off from the rest of the body. So you need to join the family before you sit down at the family table. You need to commit to the church before you renew that commitment to the church. This also means that if you are a member of another church and became one based on the profession of faith and your baptism, then you should be able to participate in the Lord's Supper at another church. Just like you don't need to be rebaptized when you join another church, your membership at another church should show that you are able and qualified to participate in the Lord's Supper. In Acts chapter 20, Paul and Luke most likely take the Lord's Supper in another church. So, a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I will introduce it with words like this. If you're a member of this church, or if you're a member of another church that believes the same gospel, and you've been baptized as a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to partake. Now, I understand that this is different than what we have said in the past. And if you're here and you now realize that you've been participating, but don't meet up with one of these things, well, what should you do? How should you feel? Well, friend, you should not feel bad. Let me stress that. This is not meant to incur guilt on you. It's not meant to create doubts about your salvation. Absolutely not. In fact, I would love to talk to you more about this, to think through and answer these questions well, because these are serious matters. These are not empty symbols. And friends, we are working on putting this down in formal writing. But for now... It would be my pastoral counsel. Notice again, it's another carefully chosen word. Counsel, not command. Because we fence this table. We do not police this table. It would be my pastoral counsel if you have not met one of these things or requirements. Perhaps not to partake today. If you profess to believe in Jesus and you haven't been baptized yet, Talk to me about getting baptized. I would love to talk to you about that. If you are not a member of a church, become a member of a church. Talk to me about that. Now, I know these things have been fuzzy in the past, especially concerning membership. And we are working on that. 
So friends, again, this is not meant to create doubts. Instead, my goal, and I believe the goal, if I can speak on behalf of the other elders, is to start down the path to make these matters clearer. Final strokes of the brush, I promise. What is communicated in the Lord's Supper? When taking the Lord's Supper, individuals renew their profession of faith in Christ. They renew their commitment to Christ. They renew their commitment to Christ's people. So when taking the Lord's Supper, churches communicate, they show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show their shape. They show who is in and they show who is out. They show 